Hey, Disney Cruise fans, it's Wes. If you'd like to support the show, please consider booking your next Disney trip with us. We are independent travel agents affiliated with Mickey World Travel, a platinum Disney earmarked agency. Though we specialize in Disney cruises, we book all Disney destinations. We'll help you with all the planning details and make sure you don't miss out on anything important. Of course, if it is a Disney cruise, we'll give you some onboard credit up to $1,000 to spend on your trip. That's free money to spend on whatever you want just for booking with us. Spa treatments, port adventures, merchandise, adult dining experiences. It doesn't cost you anything to work with us, and you'll pay the same as if you book directly through Disney. So you might as well get some extra spending money to take with you. If you're interested, send me an email at Wes, W-E-S, at MickeyWorldTravel.com. And now, on to the show. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 122 of the DCL Dude Podcast. My name is Wes, and the the two things that I that had me most excited about in the month of uh, September are all coming together on the same weekend. Uh, this episode and the D23 Expo. So I'll talk a little bit more about the episode in a second, but I'm really excited about the D23 Expo. I'm leaving on Friday morning and we'll be there through Sunday and I'm I'm hoping to connect with a lot of a lot of different people while I'm out there. I've had conversations with with several folks who are going to be there so I'm I'm really excited for that all to play out. I'm also very hopeful that there will be some big Disney Cruise Line announcements and <laughs> if I'm honest I'm a, I'm actually going to be uh pretty disappointed if there aren't any, but it uh it should be a whole lot of fun. Be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter for updates throughout the weekend. One quick thing I wanted to mention, did you see the Disney Cruise special offer for Disney Plus subscribers? Uh, they're running a promotion where the third and fourth guests on a reservation are free on most sailings departing January to April 2023 uh, for cruises on the Fantasy, the Dream, and the Magic. There are... Uh, a few blackout dates, but if you're thinking about a cruise in early 2023 and you're a Disney Plus subscriber, you'll definitely want to check out this offer. Disney Cruise Line never does offers like this, so you, you definitely want to take advantage while you can. Uh, it can also be applied to existing reservations, so it's, uh, it's, it's definitely pretty exciting. And as always, reach out to me with questions. I would, uh, I would love to, to book something for you. So, as I mentioned earlier, I've been really excited about this week's episode. One of the best things about doing this podcast has been the opportunities that I've had to connect with people who have Disney Cruise expertise and behind-the-scenes insights, and I get extra giddy when I get the chance to speak with former Imagineers. I have always said that it would be the coolest job and to work on a Disney Cruise project would just be the icing on the cake. Um, I'm talking with a former Disney Imagineer in this week's episode and I, I think you're going to really enjoy it. So take a listen. The completion of the Disney Wish marked a major milestone in the history of Disney Cruise Line, which hadn't added a new ship to its fleet in over a decade. The, the cruise industry has come a long way in terms of technology and innovation over those years, so I was really excited to see what Disney would come up with when it had sort of a blank canvas to work with. 
Uh, I have to imagine that countless ideas and concepts were discussed, and I'm always fascinated to hear about the decision-making processes and the steps that were taken that led to the finished product that we see today. Theron Skies is a former Disney Imagineer and Vice President Portfolio Creative Executive and was involved with some of the decision-making uh, as it relates to the Wish and along with other uh, various Disney Cruise Line projects. Theron has kindly agreed to join me in this week's episode to discuss his role in bringing the Disney Wish to life. Uh, hi, Theron. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Hi, good afternoon, Wesley. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's it's my pleasure and thanks for thanks for taking the time. So my first question for you is is sort of a, a two-part one. I, I I love a good origin story. So could you maybe share a little bit about your own history with Disney Imagineering and, and what led you to becoming the the vice president portfolio creative executive? Uh, and then secondly, what did you oversee in that role as it relates to to Disney Cruise Line, both kind of past and present? Sure. No, it's a great question. I always kind of talk about it as a Cinderella story in a sense. And one of the great hallmarks of the Disney company, in fact, uh, was always that they hired people not just based on their academic achievements, uh, you know, or what school they came from. But in general, they hired people based on their uh, breadth of knowledge and experience and expertise and how well, of course, you you worked on a team together and collaborated with people. So my background is is kind of an interesting one. It's a combination of of art and uh, of, and of construction. My uh, my uh, family had a construction business, um, and I started working in construction since I was wow, like nine. Um, and it was very interesting to combine uh, the love of art and design into uh, this construction, and that led me to film, uh, film and television work, um, set construction, painting, sculpture, all of the different uh, kind of disciplines that you'd imagine in putting together a film set or, or working on television. And um, I had also, in that time of freelance, uh, had discovered uh, theme parks and working at Universal Studios and did a very large artificial rock work job. And that, that just sort of led me to Walt Disney Imagineering. Um, I had never... Uh, really known of them before, which is much to the chagrin of of the thousands of <laughs> you know hopefuls who are applying for the job. Um, I I kind of stumbled on it by mistake, um, and and met somebody who had worked there. In fact, we were working together on the Universal job, and he invited me to come to Paris in 1991 and participate in building Disneyland Paris, oh, wow. uh, which at the time was called Euro Disneyland. So with my rockwork experience, I went over and art directed the rockwork at um, one of my favorite attractions, which is the Pirates of the Caribbean. So um, that was an amazingly fun job. Uh, came back to the States afterwards, and they the company wasn't hiring, which is kind of what happens with sure. Imagineering and in the theme park industry in general. The hiring and layoffs kind of ebb and flow in that way. Eventually uh, came back to the company in 1997 as a consultant, did a bunch of work and got hired full time in 98. And um, I started as a field art director. So that's uh, somebody who does, uh, like I said, combines art, uh, that sort of um, artisan expertise of creating with your hands. Wow, yeah. Um, uh, and, and then knowing how to do the construction and then guiding uh, different companies in the field to kind of execute that that look. And then I, 
I told my boss at the time, her name was Barbara, amazing, amazing boss. I said, look, Barbara, I'm working third shift. Nobody's ever going to recognize me uh, or, or see my my skill or talent. So can I, I can I do something else? Can I work during the day? And and they uh, set it up with the art director of the studio at the time, a gentleman named John. And John said, yeah, sure, you know, come on in and, and start doing some design work. So I worked about 100 hours a week because wow. I'd start uh, 1130 at night do the night shift till six, um, kind of splash off bird bath in the sink <laughs> in the, in the office trailer, put, put on a new t-shirt and, and sat down at the board and designed till about two wow. in the afternoon. And, and it, it worked. I got, I got recognized. People saw my talent and I, and I got hired full time and, and the rest, as they say, is kind of uh, history. I just, you know, put myself in a place where I could take on lots of different opportunities uh, went back overseas, did a bunch of things, and literally every new job I had in Imagineering was something I had never done before. Mm. And it, it was one of the things that I I talk talk to a lot of students and new professionals about today is, you know, if you're in a role where you're fifty percent terrified and fifty percent excited, <laughs> um, then that gives you the appropriate level of focus, I think, sure, to, yeah. to do what I what I'd like to consider a great job. You know? Yeah. Oh, I like that. So. In your role as, uh, now I'm blanking on the title, Vice President, Portfolio Creative Executive, what uh, what kind of projects did you work for or work on as it relates to the cruise line? And I know it you know wasn't Wish specific that you had you know some history prior to the Wish even being um, you know a thought. So what what was your background as it relates to the Disney Cruise Line? Absolutely. Well, I had just uh, finished my work um, as the Executive Creative Director on Disney Springs. It was 2016, and um, the leadership had really changed and shifted at Imagineering, which often happens in companies. And when that happens, you often see a lot of people moving around. And um, so there was a, an opportunity uh, for that vice president role. At the time, Bob Weiss uh, had reached out and said, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd really like you to do this role. I was super excited because it was sort of one of the last things that I – uh, or I should say one of the last types of design development and experience creation that I hadn't done with the company before, uh, working in hotels, our D&E, theme parks, attractions. I had kind of was rounding the bases, <laughs> so to speak. Uh, uh, and I, I thought, wow, doing the, the cruise line would be amazing. So it was really a dream come true. And that role uh, portfolio executive, uh, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> there was only about a dozen uh, uh, of those execs worldwide and and their role was to oversee uh large venues or or business types so uh my assignment was to partner daily with the cruise team that leadership team and um and that was a 20 year old business at the time so very mature you know very much uh understood their place in the industry and which in in large part i, I say that because i think that's significant it's much harder to make a real splash once you've been in an industry and, and are somewhat of an industry leader for decades um, to really have a, an organization the size of Disney be able to make those kind of radical decisions, you know, uh, top to bottom to really innovate mm -hmm. is a challenge. Um, but I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that our team did that, you know, to sure. collaboratively with the with the cruise line. So you mentioned what are a couple of things that I got to do. So as the portfolio executive, um, literally most of the all the creative 
um, elements uh, that guests participated in or were a part of were really a part of my purview. And I, I partnered very closely with entertainment, uh, entertainment executive, uh, because although that wasn't under my purview, we worked very closely together, actually had a blast uh, on a lot of different things. And so that entailed the four existing ships in the fleet, uh, the classic ships, the Magic and the Wonder, and then the um, the latest new ships, <laughs> which I don't know how they're tagging them today because we have real new <laughs> right. ships, uh, but that was the, the fantasy and the dream. And then um, uh, that work was to really manage all of the the retrofitting uh, and dry dock work on those four ships. You know, Disney is a company that never rests on right. uh, making it the very best experience for the guests as possible. So every year, uh, the one of the ships was in for a dry dock, and sometimes it was it was not uh, a huge scope of work. Uh, but we always tried to go in and work with the cruise team and say, "Oh, we can we can change this. We can make this a little better. We can, you know, modify this." And sometimes it was a very very big scope. Um, also was um, Disney's private island destination in the Bahamas, Castaway Key. And um, uh, my team and I had a lot of fun r- kind of master planning and playing around with what you could do on the island to see, you know, we knew that there were three ships coming and it, it was going to be very difficult to to manage the island with seven ships. Right. So, uh, the you know, as the company was looking for another destination in the Bahamas, they kind of said, well, it makes sense to take a look at our existing assets and, and how hard can they work for us. And so that was really fun uh, part of, of the job. And then, of course, was searching for new destinations, which meant lots of Bahama trips and yeah. kayaking around islands and dreaming about what could live where. And, oh, wow. and, and that was that was really fun. Yeah. Was there any ever serious consideration to kind of um expanding castaway key maybe adding amenities to accommodate more more people or potentially a second berth for a second ship any any like major considerations that were talked about for you know castaway key expansion um i can't probably talk about a lot of it Fair uh, enough. but yep. i would just say that there was a lot of study study that went on um anybody that's actually been to the island uh, because the sh- the island is actually quite flat, and when any one of those ships comes in, you can really see across the whole island. And I think most guests who have sailed before would would realize a lot of that island's not really developed. So you could imagine we were excited to play with what could you do there, and um, and if anything, um, it gave the Disney Cruise Line leadership team the ability to have you know, a bunch of options for them to look at for, for years to come. And um, I, I don't think there's a lot of people in their career that have the opportunity to say, wow, I got to master plan an island. You know? Right, That's right. That's kind of fun. Absolutely. So obviously we know now officially that, that Disney has uh, purchased an additional property in the Bahamas, Lighthouse Point. Um, you know, what was this? What's the search like for that? What kinds of things is Disney Cruise Line looking for, and how do how do you start with, like, just a piece of land and 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 turn it into a a uh, a cruise destination? Like, what is that process like? Well, I think if you would consider um, Walt Disney Imagineering's role uh, with the Disney Company um, Parks and Experiences, um, 
Imagineering kind of manages, if you will, that land for the company all over the world. Mm. So if there's an expansion that's that's going to happen in Paris or Tokyo or or Disneyland, for example, Imagineering already has kind of a large chart, if you will, uh, that they work with the Walt Disney Company on what money capital plan is dedicated to what uh, resort for what time to do what thing. And so Imagineering partners very closely with the company uh, to do that, in fact. And and that's really very cool. So acquiring new land like that, there's so many considerations and so many different layers of people, as you could imagine, to to make a kind of purchase like that. And there, there was uh, quite a lot of searching to find the right destination. And there's, as you can imagine, not just um, from an experience standpoint, the land has to uh, be in a certain way to support the kind of experiences that um, the the business, the Disney Cruise Line business um, provides for its guests. So there's, you're, you're examining possibilities for that, but you're also looking at um how far away from the other island is hmm. it? Uh, will it work with the fuel consumption necessary for the ships? I mean, there's a lot of business right. uh, rationale with it as much as as it is creative. Um, so I, for me, having uh, not having any of that previous knowledge was really fascinating to be able to learn that. And thankfully, many members of my team were already had already been working in the the cruise line for a very long time. So it was so supportive to have those team members that had that knowledge and then to be partnering with the cruise line executives to kind of learn that uh, because as experienced creators, that's what we look for from our quote client is what are the business criteria so that we can create the best experience for your audience. That's great. So we, we know about lighthouse point and now we got to get additional, additional ships in the fleet so that we can, you know, bring lighthouse point online. And I want to think back to originally it was announced that there would be two new ships in the fleet. And I think it was September, 2019 when we first started to really learn about Disney cruise lines plans for, you know, expansion. And I think it was at D 23 of that year that they revealed there would be three new ships instead of two, as it was originally announced. Um, I'm sure, you know, people inside knew well before that date, but that was when it was sort of official. How did, I guess, the previous successes of the cruise line contribute to this need or this desire to expand? And then can you sort of give us a sense of the excitement and the anticipation from the, you know, the creative teams and the industry when it was first announced that Disney Cruise Line would be building three new ships? Well, as you said, we did the 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 team found out long before it was announced publicly. And I, I think um, excitement is a uh, is a good word to describe. I think what the resulting uh, uh, sentiment by everybody was the first sentiment was, Oh my goodness. Do we, have we, have we thought about our resources in the right way? Oh. Do we have it? Do we have a, you know, how do we have to augment our plan? Cause we were already planning on two ships. Oh, that was the sure. order. That was the plan. And, and we, you know, obviously you build up a, a, a resource. How many people do we need? What are the experts where we need? How long, uh, do we need, you know, this is this is not like a uh, an attraction that's built, for example, at Walt Disney World, where the majority of all the contractors kind of live and work in the same state and within a, you know, a, a 
what a 20 to 50 mile radius of sure, the yeah. of the construction site this is being built in germany <laughs> i mean it and it's <laughs> north germany so northern germany so you're you're flying to amsterdam and you're driving two and three quarter hours just to get to the the shipyard and all of the companies that are supporting that work are are in that european region so it, it adds a level of complexity so i'll just say that the initial reaction was oh my goodness yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> how, how do we do this you know yes it's really great it's it's very cool and then uh, and then we of course we figured it out because that's what that's what the teams are designed to do is to figure out really complex problems and and um and that's what being an imagineer i think is really all about is is solutioning problems in the most creative way that really drives brand experience for the Disney company. And, um, and that's kind of the, the long legacy of, of Walt Disney Imagineering. And so when, as a leader, when you get news like that, at, at one moment, you're like, okay. And then you <laughs> relax because you know, you've got an awesome team of people, sure. you know, obviously to, uh, to work together to, to solve that problem. But, but it ended up resulting, of course, as I mentioned in super excitement, because you have to remember before the pandemic, uh, the cruise industry was geometrically expanding. Every single major cruise line had multiple ship orders in. In fact, the, the, order for disney had been placed years before oh wow to actually purchase in a sense with it with a cruise line you purchase a slot an available time for it your ship to be built so it's it's very different than land-based construction uh you know where you show up and, and erect a building and, and build streets and all that stuff it's 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 a little bit more like a custom order of a car i think that's what probably most lay people who aren't familiar with that. That's the way I thought of it anyways, as a lay person, sure. not uh, familiar with nautical uh, design or construction. And um, it's, it's very much the shipyards schedule and the way that they, you know, the way that they work, which was an amazing uh, education, honestly, really very cool. I bet. Yeah. I uh, had the pleasure of uh, experiencing the Disney Wish, and I got to you know see see it for myself, and it's it's an amazing ship. And when I think about a Disney park or you know a specific ride, at the heart of everything that Disney does is storytelling, and Disney's ability to kind of take you out of your day to day life and sort of immerse you in this new setting is is something that I think sets it apart from all other entertainment companies. And I think at the end of the day, the emotion that that immersive experience creates is is what keeps people coming back. At least, you know, that's that's how it is for me. Can Absolutely. You, can you tell us a little bit about the process for creating a story for a cruise ship versus doing one, you know, on a <laughs> land-based attraction for theme parks? Because I can imagine they're they're two significantly different uh, different processes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, for me personally, following in the footsteps of of giants uh, before me who had created obviously the business, the Disney Cruise Line business, there was already a a long history, uh, twenty years in fact, of creating that type of um, story, that that type of experience aboard a ship. Um, but there was a, a pretty significant difference. Um, when when myself and and the team that I you know rallied together to to actually build this and the new management of Imagineering at the time ha had never really 
wasn't there for when the other ships were built. So it was, in a sense, it was a bit of a new experience, even though we had a lot of experienced people there. And I'm just setting a context for you. The industry itself was rapidly expanding and very much looking for any kind of innovation, any kind of differentiation. And there was all kinds of crazy thing first roller coaster at sea you know and yeah um i know the um the the uh the edge class ships came out and they had this really cool uh balcony the whole window lowered down and and create i mean there's some really really <clears throat> pardon me interesting innovation so that was kind of the environment that we were building these ships in and um also we at imagineering at the disney company we had a huge advantage over the Imagineers and the original cruise line people who created the first four ships because we had so many more opportunities with intellectual property, right? Bob Iger had mm. had had purchased Marvel, um, Lucasfilm, Pixar. Um, and even though the other ships benefited from that by retrofitting uh, newer ideas and, and those you know, IP usage, we were at the precipice of creating ships from the ground up leveraging these incredible uh you know this stable if you will of ip and characters and settings and stuff so that that was really different so directly to your question about creating something on a ship versus on land when you're on land you have um the opportunity to have very long vistas right long views think about standing in animal kingdom and you're looking at Mount Everest, right? I mean, you have a very long view with very mature trees, you know, 30, 40 year old trees that right. have been transplanted from somewhere else. Um, you you will never get those vistas on a ship um, that you designed, right? You'll stand on the deck and look at the sea, uh, look at everything that's out there, but no, none of us created that, right? It's just what you get to see. So the created part is almost all interior and you have limitations on what you can create in an interior space. So uh, from my perspective, what I learned was how to maximize that interior space in such a way that you can really create these immersive, um, sometimes very intimate feeling uh, spaces and um, using Disney IP in a way that's different than what you see when you're in a theme park. You know, if you go to Toy Story Land, for example, um, in, in any one of our parks, you have, you know, giant roller coasters and play sets. And in fact, you feel as if you've been shrunken to the size of a toy. And and you can do that in a theme park because you have, you know, uh, as as tall as you want to go, yeah, <laughs> you right. know, to build yeah. on a on a ship ship you don't. So um, you have to look at that story and say, well, how can I create that? What what part of the story can I tell here? in this interior environment that makes the most sense. Um, you know, you don't want to create an outdoor scene necessary because you've only got 10 or 12 feet to the ceiling and, and, and it, you would immediately really kind of be limited and guests would feel like, wow, you, you kind of fell short here. So I think that's important is understanding the um, design criteria and then telling the best story, creating the best experience possible uh, within that space. Very interesting. I want to um, touch on one of the things that you mentioned. You you brought up IP a few times uh, and newer IPs a few times. 
One of the things that really excited me about The Wish was the incorporation of some of these fan favorite IPs into areas where adults can enjoy them. You know, you have the Hyperspace Lounge, Worlds of Marvel, even Absolutely. even just, you know, to a lesser extent, the Mickey Mouse shorts. I mean, I, I as an adult enjoy those. Is there... Was there a sense among the design teams that, hey, adults enjoy these things too, so let's find ways for adults to experience them? Is that, was that a focus of the, of the creative teams? It, it absolutely was. Um, and then that was, um, you know, when you start a project uh, with Disney, you have criteria that you're designing to. In a sense, you're, you're not only responsible for building the brand of the company, but you really want to touch the audience, the guests, in a in an emotional way with an with a story and and really kind of grow that brand, but you're also sort of solving uh, business problems as well. So uh, that was exactly what happened with um, working with the Disney Cruise Line executive team, right? All the leadership team, where we we worked with them to develop the criteria by which we would design the ship. And one of the things that really kept coming up was. Um, verbatim so um guests who have actually said you know this is what we've said i wish that i could go and play with my kids in the kids clubs you know there's so many cool things that they do i want to fly right millennium falcon yeah. you know i i want to have a lightsaber duel with uh darth vader and so there was the the, the cruise line team really told us that there were so many adults that wanted to kind of participate in that. So what you picked up on, Wesley, is absolutely a design focus for, for the team was not just to create adult um, um, accessible versions of those IP, but I don't know if you knew this, but all of the kids' areas uh, on deck two, all of the, the, you know, the Imagineering Lab, all of those areas, we designed that with a corridor on the outside of the kids' areas. Uh, with uh, separate access. Oh, wow. So the idea was the the internal access, which we called secure access, right? So that your your kids are safe. Um, uh, on, at certain times during a particular cruise, the the children's department, uh, you know, the entertainment department, they could choose, you know what, we're going to take Star Wars and we're going to make that available for the family or Marvel uh, space that we design, or the princess space. Well, they can close off and secure the doorway, if you will, that accesses internally the secure program, and they can uh, have an access to the outside uh, so that families could come in and play together, and that they're, and it would still remain secure, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I think that that was a huge change for the the kids programming to be able to offer that uh, to the cruise line, so they can they can do that as often uh, or as few times as they want during sure, the cruise, yeah, yeah. and hopefully give give the grownups the opportunity to play in these super cool areas uh, uh, with their kids. Right, that's that's really cool. And I actually I saw on one cruise um, there, you know, in in I think it's like the cargo bay in the the Oceaneers Club. Um, adults were taking right. pictures with like Chewbacca and Ray, so you know they they were able to go into those spaces and interact with some of the the Star Wars characters in sort of this immersive environment. So I just I thought that was something really cool um, in terms of the design and, and you know and the and the and the creative the creativity of the Disney Wish. Absolutely. I, can, can I also just say, Wesley? I think one thing that's really important about that is that um, 
Disney listens to their guests. Uh, I mean, because this this came from guests. Boy, we wish we could sail here. We wish we could uh, 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 play in this space. We'd love this kind of food, and and that it's just really important to reinforce. It's it's wonderful to work for a company that that actually does that. You know, that that actually listens and responds and builds experiences that uh, respond to what guests want to see. For sure, yeah, absolutely. I think it's great that they. You know, they take that feedback and then and then put it into action. And you know, I appreciate that, especially you know, I'm a big Marvel fan. I'm a I'm a a, a, a Star Wars fan, so I like being able to you know to to experience those uh, those uh, characters and things like that myself. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about the design of the Wish. Um, you know, the the footprint of the Wish is relatively the same size as the the Dream and the Fantasy. You know, I think. Technically, it's a little bit larger, but it's, you know, it's, it's a noticeably different design concept. And I think the glaring difference is the, the elimination of the, the midship elevator bank, which I'm actually a fan of, but it also seems like maybe there was a a heavy focus on figuring out new ways to kind of maximize available space on board to come up with, you know, new ways to use those spaces so that maybe there wasn't waste, you know, for example, like there's no nightclub type venue in, you know, on the wish. So just, it seemed like there was a heavy focus on coming up with new ways to use spaces on board. Absolutely. I mean, great eye to catch that because that was uh, another one of those focuses um, was, you know, on some of our other ships, you'll have a nightclub and it may feature some activity during the day. Um, you know, you, you may have a bingo in, in one or you might have, um, 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 you know, some game that's played or something. But it they were so specifically designed to be a nightclub that it, the, the physical structure of the space was limiting as to what it could be what what it could do and what it could feature. So our team's focus was how do we create spaces on board the new class of vessel that give the cruise line the maximum opportunity to use those spaces more frequently and to offer, honestly, offer a lot more variety of programming for the guests. And one of those examples was the Buena Vista Theater. You know, on all of our other ships, it's one theater. I believe it's about 400, just under 400 capacity, uh, the theater. But if you're a grown-up, and if I'm being honest, you're in the top of that theater, you do not have a lot of room for your knees because of the way that that was designed. So we decided, well, look, what if we take the radical approach of splitting the theater into two smaller theaters? Um, That would give the cruise line the ability to actually show more films or show uh, films more frequently during a particular itinerary. Um, We thought, let's let's overstuff, if you will, quote unquote, make it feel like a theater in a, a, you know, a multimillionaire's home. What what would that little personal boutique theater be like and and do them highly themed? So that's an example of of looking at an activity that is really a part of a Disney cruise. And how do we take that activity and. Uh, one, put it in a place where it is most appropriate for the flow of guests during a particular cruise, uh, any one of a Disney cruise, and then situating and designing the space to function the very best at that activity. So that was one of the challenges about 
uh, why the midship elevator it was decided to be removed. Um, their Disney Cruise Line had said, "Look, there's so much congestion um, that we experience on our ships, um, in particular on embarkation days, deparkation days." Um, uh, days when we're in port and everybody's trying to get off to go to, you know, their their shore excursions. There's there's some challenges now. They didn't particularly say it's midship elevators. They just said, is there any way that we can, as we're designing the new ships, really think about ways to streamline um, the movement of people? So as we examined that, um, we came up with this idea. Well, what if we drove? You know, specifically um, drove people to forward elevators and aft elevators, and and we moved those closer to the center of the ship, so it wasn't a huge hike to get to them, and remove the midship elevators. And um, the teams did a ton of work on that. We did modeling of it, uh, where we had little computer uh, AI people that modeled, oh, wow. you know, what would it be like with the elevators and without, and lots of what they call simulations. We had industrial engineering study that. And came back with, you know, it would actually improve circulation if we eliminated those elevators. And so that's what the, the approach that, that we took. And then in place of that, we thought, wow, we could do some really great programming right in the atrium, right in the, the center part of the, the heart of the ship that would really drive to the brand of Disney better and, and actually serve the uh, the the experience better than the elevators would be, and that's the atrium stage. That's the expanded um, area uh, that you see, like in the Enchanted Forest, and 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 all of those decisions were started from how do we or how can we be more efficient, moving people and making that not a friction point or a frustration point with guests who are standing really, really too long for, for an elevator, sure. you know? And then we, through that decision, we actually created uh, what I would consider really great um, alternative experiences than waiting for an elevator. Yeah. I, 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 I like the two <laughs> elevator model. Um, I, you know, everyone's got their own opinion, but I, I, I tend to like it myself. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you a question, a very like practical design question. And I, when I think of like the upper decks, um, of a of a cruise ship, that almost seems to me like something that is you know a heavy focus and, and you know you you, you got to figure out you have limited space so how do we how do we figure out what to do there? In terms of swimming pools, so the other ships have uh, basically two large swimming pools on them. The Wish is very different. It has I think it's seven right. small swimming pools. <laughs> What is the thought process behind swimming pools and using space on the upper decks, you know, in a, in a way that maybe, um, you know, other, other cruise ships aren't doing it? Well, when, when you take on a project like a cruise ship, uh, one of the things that our team, <clears throat> pardon me, was very focused on was the fact that you, at some point during your cruise, your guests are going to want to see the sea. <laughs> They're going to want to be in the sun, Right. And when they get to the island, they're going to want to have the sand and the shells and swimming. And, and that's an important component of the cruise line. So we never left lost uh, uh, focus on the nautical aspect of being on a ship. Not only is it core to the design principle of Disney Cruise Line, but we um, uh, in that particular period of time in the industry, 
uh, with larger ships like Oasis and others, they they made a distinct choice to go away from that. And it really fe- felt very much like a beautiful apartment building or a mall or something, uh, not nautically focused. So just contextually, that was our focus. On the ships on the existing fleet, with uh, two major pools and then smaller splash pools um, that are family pools, when you have uh, a youngster uh, that's in a, a diaper, for example, and you and they have an accident in the pool, um, which doesn't happen often, but when it does happen, that in, there's a protocol um, for cleaning that that sometimes can take multiple hours, right? Up to four hours, five hours, something like that. And that whole entire system has to be clean. The water has to be drained and they have to scrub down. And when we collectively examine that, um, not only as a cruise line business, but also as the Imagineering team, we said, wow, that, that's, that's a, a huge dissatisfier for guests. Of course, it's important to clean it. It has to be done right. But could we reconfigure the, the thinking on pools to give guests the opportunity to play and splash in pools and, and even swim uh, to some degree? But if there's an accident in a pool, since, I mean, Disney's uh, focus, right. of course, is families. Yeah. You're going to have younger children playing everywhere, and the chances of an accident are quite high. And it's it's not the little person's right. fault, right. you know. That makes so sense. We just kind of rationale that you could close one pool down, but you still have five or six other areas to still be able to enjoy uh, being on deck, splashing around in the water, and, and enjoying yourself. Got it. It makes makes total sense, and 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 thanks for thanks for, uh, uh, for filling me in on that. It was I know I hadn't sent you that question, but it was just something that you know sort of been on my mind, and figured maybe you would know something about it. So thanks for that. Absolutely. Well, you know, there was I'll just continue really quickly because there was one other thought that we had with regard to those pools, and that was uh, nighttime spectaculars. Um, if you think about our our other uh, ships in the fleet. There's a, a really cool technology that of like these giant floor panels that move in and cover the pool so that during a deck show, you know, families can be out there dancing around, having fun, being goofy and having a you know, great time. Um, so there we thought if we uh, but oh, I was going to say the, the part of the challenge with that is it's all one level. So you could have 100, maybe 200 guests uh, in that upper deck area in front of the stage. But visibility is, can be quite difficult, especially when there's an, an entertainment show. You've got pirates and, you know, uh, maybe Spider-Man is swinging in or Captain Jack. And, and I know that especially for children that are further back in the crowd away from the stage, it's very difficult to see. So with that as context of the existing ships, the uh, dividing up the pools into multiple pools was one solution, but cascading them in terraces that actually went between two decks and the fact that those pools get drained at night or covered gives our guests multiple standing platforms now during the show that they can actually view and have a uh, really good viewing angles. So some guests may want to stay in their bathing suits and continue splashing in the pools, even during the show. So we've given the cruise line the ability to do that. And then we've also covered some of the pools. So it gives additional elevated viewing uh, uh, spaces for guests who want to stand and be able to watch the show, you know, viewing uh, can be a challenge 
when you've got thousands of people on board yeah. and those uh, rails uh, get completely full. You, right. you can't really see. So that was kind of a, the, the dual design uh, focus of splitting the pools like that and uh, providing multiple layers um, in there. Our hope was that it would really feed into um, the, the, the type of shows that Disney Cruise Line puts on and give the maximum number of guests the ability to, to see them as well. One of the um, things about the wish that I really was uh, appreciative of is all of the uh, the different themes and content that it had. So you had when the dream, when the fantasy and the um, dream came out. Sure, they were different than the wonder and and the um, and the magic, but they they you know they had similar themes. It was everything was kind of located in a similar area. With the wish, it feels like there was a you know completely fresh start, and you know lots of new content, lots of unique themes. Just in particular, I loved that there were three brand new, unique main dining restaurants. Right. <laughs> so, can you talk a little bit about the thought behind going with new themes, you new content, unique content that was you know completely different than the rest of the fleet? Absolutely. Um, there's a, a lot in there, so I'll try to be um, condensed with my response. I think your audience would, will be really interested in this. Again, when the ships, um, when, when I was uh, promoted and put into this role and uh, started to lead the team, the cruise line also got a new leader at the same time. And um, our collaboration uh, between Imagineering and Disney Cruise Line really um, there was a, a desire to go in a slightly different direction than the cruise line had been uh, performing or, or doing in the last 20 years. And that was to, uh, you know, we looked at, for example, Walt Disney World, where you had multiple parks and a guest who travels to Walt Disney World or Tokyo Disneyland or Paris, you know, wherever there's multiple different venues that are styled and themed differently, different stories. Uh, the mindset shifted to, well, why wouldn't we do that on the ships as well? Why wouldn't we put unique shows, so uh, live performances? Why wouldn't we put unique restaurants or, or themes or bars or kids programming? Why, why wouldn't we do that? Uh, you know, we'll have we, – we all rationed uh, rational to our minds that we'd have seven ships. So we could drive um, unique guest visitation to ships either for content on the ship – or for the ship's destination. Never been to Alaska and you want to go to Tiana's place? It's the only place you can get that. Only ship you can get that is the Wonder. Yeah. Um, you know, so that was kind of the rationale at the time. And we began applying that in the fleet, as I mentioned, Tiana's place and and um other uh, implementations of that that you can see within the fleet to the degree possible. But we really applied that to the new ships. And of course, as the second uh, ship comes out after the wish, and then finally the third ship. I think uh, I know your audience will be uh, will be hopefully remembering um, all of the discussions that uh, you've heard from from Disney and others who worked on the ships. That uh, that that was the goal because you'll you'll be also be seeing all this differentiated content, and that was a that was a huge focus. In addition, you have to remember that at Disney, as an experienced designer, as an Imagineer. You have to create um, experiences for the largest range of people literally on the planet. So whether you're right. four or 94, you're, you're, you're in a Disney park, you're sailing on a Disney vessel, 
So as an experience designer, you have to create experiences that are very current uh, with the current Marvel film or the current um, uh, Star Wars film or, you know, the current Pixar movie. It has to be current and relevant for young people. But you also have to bring in a bit of nostalgia so that the uh, parents or grandparents that are sailing also see Disney in, in what what we're presenting. Um, and that's true for theme parks and everything. It, it's always a, a real balance. So if you think about the Disney wish, you think about those uh, restaurants, right? You'll see, um, uh, especially main dining on the main floor, you'll see in 1923, a, a real um, look back, a, a bit of nostalgia, still rooted in the styling of today, but but a, a, you know something that looks back. And in all of those restaurants, you'll see uh, and in kids' areas and everything else, where where we try to take this balance so that everybody in the whole family uh, experiences Disney um, in a way that's fresh and relevant for them. I I love that you brought up 1923 because that's you know I love that restaurant and I love the you know the nods to the early days of the Walt Disney Company with the animation and the sculptures and it's almost like. A museum in those restaurants and i i just i i could spend an hour just walking around and looking at all the displays and even you know with marceline market having uh, a throwback to you know walt's hometown i i love those the, those nostalgic pieces that um you know that that, that the imagineers and the creative teams implemented and i i i think i i think it works really well um for you know for the audience that that enjoys those nostalgic experiences. Absolutely. You know, I have to really commend the Disney Cruise Line um, leadership team and especially their, um, in the food and beverage uh, team, because 1923 was a huge departure for them. We, I mean, literally the team spent months and months working on this, because if you, if you think about it, 1923 is divided into two restaurants, right? There's a corridor that goes between the middle of them to the elevator bank. It's the same uh, number of seats as all of the main uh, floor restaurants on all the other ships. Uh, seven fifty, I think, is what it, I, I think. I can't remember exactly. There's over seven hundred seats, but uh, that design came out of a huge amount of effort uh, to make those dining rooms feel less. Um, large. Uh, some of those dining rooms, and this was from the Disney Cruise Line team that came to Imagineering and said, you know, sometimes uh, we have guests that say, you know, it, it feels like we're in too large of a space. It feels like this big, huge space mm. and and it, it's uncomfortable. So taking that feedback and looking at ways to change that up, I know that 1923 is a result of that. And um, I know that it was a real big challenge for the operations teams to think about Wow, how do we do that with one restaurant that's actually really two restaurants? Yeah. And and how do we do that? And uh, but they are massively successful. I've heard nothing but you know praise uh, for that. And and it's just really exciting to see when a company takes a risk like that to to do something better, and it, and it really does pay off. I think that's that's really great for sure. And yeah, and you, I think the smaller, more intimate feel was definitely captured. I mean, even within the two specific restaurants, they're even almost sectioned off within the restaurants themselves with, you know, by the, like, those, those displays that I mentioned. So right. it really has an upscale 
you know, intimate feeling. And I, I really awesome. like what, uh, what, what they did with 1923. <laughs> and when you, when you think of like, uh, Arendelle, for example, the big entertainment dining, um, you know, that doesn't feel strange or too large at all because guests immediately understand that they're, uh, uh, immersed in, in, and participating in a show. Right. So in a sense, you want this big wide open That's view right. so you can see all the really amazing things that are happening in the, and the performing performance. So I just think that was just such a great approach, uh, to, to, to do that and to apply to each of the restaurants in a very different way. Uh, I think I have two more questions for you, if oh, you don't sweet. mind. So when I think about thrills and attractions on the ships, I think of like the Aqua Duck on the Magic, the uh, excuse me on the on the Dream and the Fantasy, the Aqua Dunk on the Magic, and now we have the Aqua Mouse on the Wish. Has Disney ever, or would they ever, do you think, consider kind of breaking its current trend and adding more? ambitious attractions to its ships or is the idea kind of that it's you know it's a cruise ship and it's not a theme park so you know you know they're more content with kind of delivering a more authentic cruise experience yeah i i definitely would default to the latter um uh, sentiment um and, and and again one thing that you know about large companies like disney is leadership changes to and and you might have different direction, different sentiment uh, to try to react to the audience in different ways. So what I'm about to say may in fact change, but at the time, the general feeling was uh, Disney didn't want to get into what we would call the roller coaster race. If you remember several years ago in amusement parks, it was always um, this park is building the highest, fastest, and then that would get done and they'd get the benefit of some marketing for about a year. And then another th amusement park would come back and they've got the hall tallest and fastest. And <laughs> yeah. then the audience would switch and go to see them. Disney never, ever, ever wanted to get into that kind of a roller coaster arms race because frankly, that would, Disney doesn't tell those types of technology stories. They tell stories. Sure. And the technology to deliver the story isn't always a part of the story. A lot of times that technology is is kind of hidden. So if you think about the Aqua Mouse, as super cool as it is, and I, it's so neat to you know be a part of bringing something like that to, to light for the first time, it's really playing with the characters in a different way. And still enjoying uh, a water ride on a ship, and and we just thought that was the uh, the the features that guests would love the most. Um, definitely go to the theme parks to get your uh, thrill and roller coaster and high energy rides. But when you're on a a cruise ship, especially a Disney cruise line, that is sailing with your favorite Disney characters and. Immersing yourself in your favorite Disney worlds like Marvel and, and um, you know, the Lucasfilm, Star Wars, that kind of thing, Pixar friends. Um, and when it comes to holidays, I like to believe that nobody celebrates holidays at sea better than the Disney a cruise line does. So I, we always thought that was the more important thing to do is to, is to stay focused on stories and delivering stories that are the most relevant to our guests. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective that I actually never thought about before is 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 merging the technology with the storytelling because like like we started out talking about Disney is more about the storytelling and less about I mean they they're focused on that's technology right. but it's not it's not a main focus of, you know, their their attractions and stuff. So I that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, we always said that internally that 
um, I, I was going to say, um, Imagineering has said that quite a lot, that it's always story first. And then if a techno- if the best way to tell a particular story or, or create an experience where the guest is immersed in the story and a part of it, if that technology exists and can be purchased uh, and, and then maybe modified off the shelf, then, of course, that's the approach. If it's something that needs to be invented to actually deliver that experience, think of like Flight of Passage, for example, or Rise of the Resistance. Yeah. Many of those things didn't exist before or may have existed in different ways, and Imagineering modified them to tell those stories in the in the best way. And, and that's always the way the company has been, and, and I hope always stays that way. For sure, yeah. No, that's a very interesting perspective. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. So, absolutely. My last question is about sort of the the future of the fleet, and specifically related to the next two ships. Do you think that Disney will, you know, sort of press harder in terms of innovation and technology? In you know, do they have enough time to take what they've been able to do with the wish and sort of? dream bigger for for the next uh you know the next couple ships and do you think we would expect to you know ship six and seven to be noticeably different than the wish or will it kind of be like the dream and the fantasy where you know more or less the same footprint and themes and all that stuff or are they gonna you know continue to build on what they've what they've done with the wish well i'll i'll try to answer that without um revealing sure. uh, yes. the exact nature of it. And, uh, um, and again, I, I left the company uh, bef- before uh, in, in 2020. So I don't know the exact designs on those ships. But um, if you think back to something that I said about uh, Disney company in general, is they're always looking for um, innovation. That is a hallmark of, of Walt Disney. Um, it's, the, it's the heritage of the company and, and a definite tentpole So as Imagineers, we're always looking for innovative ways to tell stories, innovative ways to make the guest experience uh, even better, even if that means you get your luggage faster, even if it means you get on board and off board the ship faster. And we're not really telling a story, but it's it's about efficiency or we're we're guiding a guest in a way that's easier. You know, they're not confused. When you're on vacation, that's the last thing you want is to be confused and frustrated. Yeah. So a lot of the innovations come in, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily immediately think was an innovation. And and frankly, from an Imagineering perspective, we love that. If it's if you you know walk up to a column on a in an attraction and you have somebody knocking on the column and yep, that's fiberglass, then in a sense we kind of feel like we failed. Right. But uh, if you don't even go to the column and knock on it because it's so real to you, you don't even think about it. Well, then that's success. It's the same thing with moving people. If you're if you don't even think about the fact that you're you're being directed in a particular way um, and you're just enjoying your vacation with your family or friends, then, you know, woohoo, success. Right. So moving forward, um, I also said that, you know, there was a focus to think about the ships as individual experiences and I think when you look at the wish and compare it to the existing fleet, I think you'll see that that uh, leadership um, direction really is obvious. It's it's there are some very very different perspectives there in the wish. And um, when you when a when a, a company purchases ships from a shipyard, they're considered a particular class of vessels, 
It could be two ships. It could be three, four, five, six ships. And all of those ships are considered sisters. Um, nautically, you always refer to a ship in the female. So the three ships in, the, in this particular class will all be sister ships, and they'll have a lot of similarities. Um, but I think that you'll see, because this is a hallmark of the Disney company and certainly a hallmark of Imagineering, I think you, you will see lots of great surprises and things that you didn't expect. And um, as, as started from Walt, uh, he always wanted to surprise and delight his guests. And um, currently, that's uh, what Imagineering and the Disney Cruise Line wants to do as well. So I would say I would be very excited to see uh, what's coming out on the, on the next two vessels. That's great. Th- thanks for that. And I certainly am excited myself to see what uh, what Disney will come up with. And, uh, I, you know, I can't wait to can't wait to learn more. It was so fun <laughs> getting the, you know, the, the kind of the slow drip of information uh, about the wish as it came out. So I, I'm looking forward to that for uh, for the next ships as well. So, uh, Theron, this has been amazing and it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for for being so generous with your time i I very much appreciate it my pleasure it was a it's really great to be a part of your podcast uh thanks so much for bringing me on and uh if anybody ever wants to get a hold of me uh, you can always reach out to me on all my socials um linkedin instagram um i have a facebook page youtube channel and um, most of my content is trying to help people to learn how to be a part of this industry. Um, so that that's um, I always get good responses from that. Um, also, a friend of mine and I are writing a book that I would love for your audience to uh, check out our Facebook page. It's called How Does Disney Do That? And we're in the process of developing that. And we would love stories um, about Disney experiences from your audience. So if you check out our Facebook page, How Does Disney Do That? Um, please feel free to engage with us, and we'd love to hear your your Disney story. That's that's awesome. I, we got to chat a little bit about that project kind of offline, and I, it's it sounds like a really exciting uh, you know project that you're working on, and I'll certainly do my best to, you know, to assist you with that. And and I'll post links to, you know, your social media accounts and to your website and to, um, you know, to your, to your project, uh, social media account. So, uh, absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to, to seeing where that goes. Uh, and I, I think you mentioned eventually there's, there's (laughs) going to be a book coming out, right? Uh, that's our objective. Yes. To do the book. We, we wanted, there's so many great stories, um, about, from guests um, and from former Imagineers or uh, industry professionals uh, about, you know, their experiences uh, with the Disney company, being in parks, being on the ships, you know, adventures by Disney, water parks, golf parks. Uh, um, so we, we really would like to uh, solicit those. And, and that's kind of what uh, James, my co-author and I are doing is really delving into um, how does, how does Disney make you feel the way that you feel when you're uh, when you're watching the fireworks and and enjoying that that amazing kiss goodnight at one of our parks or you know and and so anyways we're excited to bring that to life and we'd really invite your audience to be a part of that with us for sure i myself am excited to learn how does disney do that because i can't figure it out for myself there's just <laughs> something about it that you know makes me feel a certain way and uh, I'm, I'm i'll be i'll be curious to hear your insights on that so again thank you so much for your time um best of luck with your future projects and uh, i hope to talk again sometime 
Sounds great. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dad. Wishing you all the best. As a reminder, you can connect with the show by following along on Twitter at the DCL Dude or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash DCL Dude Podcast. Please feel free to ask a question, leave a comment, drop a note, or share the podcast with your followers. I'd also be very grateful if you could rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a review. Of course, if there's anything I can do to improve your listening experience, please let me know. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.